All right, well, we're uh, continuing in our sermon series in the book of Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah is written in roughly two halves. One through 40 is the first half, and then 40 through 66 is the second half. And the first half ends uh, with this note of doom, because the first half is mostly about judgment. And I'm going to read this disturbing climax of the first half of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 39, verse 6, and this is Isaiah talking to his people, the people of Israel, and this is going to happen to them in the future. All that is in your house shall be carried away to Babylon. The house was the temple of God. Everything in the temple is going to be cleared out, taken to the huge empire of Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Even your own son shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now that is an absolute nightmare. That is the worst case scenario for Israel. It's called the exile. It's the thing that God warned them that could happen to them if they became utterly like the nations around them, if they were not different at all from the empires around them, whether the Egyptian, the Assyrian, or the Babylonian empires. If that happened, then God said, this will have to happen as part of my discipline for you. The promised land was taken away. They were taken out of the promised land. The, the whole city of Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed, just became rubble. These things are verified by archaeology. The temple was looted. Everything was taken out of it. And then it was raised. The king uh, was executed and blinded. Then all the children were taken to the capital, uh, especially the most talented ones were taken to the capital city uh, of Babylon, and they were used for the purposes of the empire. And actually, the, the worst thing of all was that the presence of God in the temple uh, physically got up and left. It was, it was like a glory cloud. It was kind of some kind of cloud that you could see as a manifestation of God's presence. And it actually says that it got up and it took off. So God had abandoned his people for 70 years. From the year 600 B.C. to 530 B.C., the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon, and they were systematically humiliated. You can read about it in the book of Daniel or in Esther. You can read about it um, in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. You can read about it in Lamentations. There's a whole period of scriptural revelation that takes place in this horrible time called the exile. But then suddenly, just completely out of the blue, it's like Isaiah turns the corner and it's like, you know, whiplash, literary whiplash. There's no rhyme or reason why you go from all this destruction to suddenly all this comfort. But it's like this voice just comes out of the darkness in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And that's the turning point right there. That's where Isaiah changes. And so if you hadn't been here for the first part, you get to be here for the second part where it's pretty much all comfort written to the exiles in Babylon about what's going to happen when God comes and ends the exile. That's, that's really what the coming of Jesus was all about. It was about ending the exile. It was not only an exile physically. That was a really kind of a metaphor, a symbol. I mean, that was real. But there was also an exile spiritually. The exile that we all experience from God after the fall. Where we're outside of Eden. We're outside of our home. And so the coming of God was going to be the end of the exile. Look at verse 10. This is why there's so much comfort. It says, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. So the one who is coming is none other than the Lord God, Yahweh. 
Uh, the Israelites were the only people on earth who believed in this one creator God, infinitely different from the creation. They believed that there was a creator, there was an infinite gap, and there was a creation. And so uh, there was an infinite qualitative difference between the creator and the creation. And they're saying that that uncreated God is going to come to his people and end the exile. Now, we don't really know exactly how Isaiah knew these things. Because he, he was writing before the exile even happened. I mean, most of the first half, it's all describing what's going to happen you know, in that period before the exile. So now he's writing as if he were in the exile, comforting the people already in the exile. Uh, it's kind of God's supernatural uh, prophecy. Things that he could never have known other than by the revelation from God. But the idea here is that there's comfort because God is coming. A king, a great king is coming. It's like the return of the king. And um, the king is great and the king is gracious. The one that God describes as coming here has really these two characteristics. Uh, number one, that he is uh, coming with might and his arm rules for him. And the arm was a symbol of strength back then. So God is coming with might and greatness and power. And you see that throughout this description in verses 1 through 11. But then not only is he great, but there are other images. And you can kind of look down and see that there are other images of God where he's not just great, but he is, he is gracious. And he is tender. He speaks tenderly. He's like a shepherd. So it's this combination. And you see it in the life of Jesus. It's all over the Bible where God is depicted both as this mighty, powerful warrior, but also as sometimes as a mother comforting her child, um, as a shepherd here, um, and all these images of, of grace and comfort and tenderness. Both these things at the same time are ways of describing God. So let's start with the great king, and then we'll look at the gracious king that is coming, that brings comfort to Israel, that will end the exile. So there's a great uh, YouTube video that I would encourage you to watch if you haven't seen it. It's a, it's a flash mob of the Hallelujah Chorus in a mall. There's one in the U.S. that takes place in like the Haynesville food court type area. And there's one in Europe that takes place in this beautiful European square. But in both cases, um, what happens is there's this crowd. And then the, suddenly this guy just comes out from the crowd and starts to sing um, the beginning of the Hallelujah Chorus. I can't remember how that goes. But, you know, it's, he, just, he, has, he has an incredible voice. And people all suddenly turn around and look at the guy. And then another one over here comes out. And he begins to join in uh, with the chorus. And then someone over here comes out. And of course, this is all planned. But by the end of it, the, the entire uh, the food court is surrounded by people singing. And, it just, and people are, like, uh, are weeping. It's just so gorgeous. And they just kind of take over the space. And I think of this uh, as these voices that are coming again and again and again. There's this speaking that's just coming out of the blue. Like the exiles are surrounded by these voices that are coming in, they're coming down from the mountains in all the cities of, of Judah, it says. And uh, they grow louder and louder. So in verse 2, it says, speak softly. You know, it's like uh, this kind of slow drumming is getting louder and louder. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. A voice cries in verse 3. So now you're not just speaking softly, but you're crying out. And then in verse 6, a voice says, cry. And it's got an exclamation point. So it's even louder. And then finally in verse 9, it says, lift your voice with strength. And that means scream. I'm not going to scream, but he's saying it's getting louder and louder. All these voices building to this chorus of the king is coming. He's a great king. A regime change is happening. It's a political revolution. 
I like to say that the Bible should really be uh, less in the religion section of libraries, certainly not in like the metaphysics section uh, or the philosophy section of a library, but, but Christianity should be in the history section because, because the Bible deals with real history. It's not just speculations about what might be out there beyond you know, the scene after death. It's not, it's not what Christianity is. It's, it's a story of what's going on in history. And this is a political regime change that is being announced by these voices. And we know that on Thursday, February 23rd, 1917, one of the great political regime changes happened in the history of the world, where 90,000, think about this, 90,000 female workers in this one town of Petrograd, 90,000 female workers left their factories, they entered the streets, and they started shouting, down with the Caesar. Down with Caesar, down with the Tsar. Tsar, the Tsars of Russia were just, that's a short form of Caesar. And Russia believed that they were part of the, uh, the Roman Empire that just had continued. And so they had these absolutely horrible, oppressive czars. And the next day, there were 150,000 voices in Petrograd, again saying, down with Caesar, down with the autocracy. And it grew and it grew. And that is how the uh, Russian Revolution began. The change from uh, the oppressive Russian Empire to... Uh, the, the Soviet Union, the USSR. And in that case, it wasn't necessarily a great change because the USSR was extremely, extremely oppressive itself. But in this case, this regime change is fantastic because you're going from the empire to the kingdom of God, to this king that is coming, and he's going to bring an entirely new kind of politics. There's an inscription from ancient Babylon and uh, this is what it says. And it's written down in a way that you can actually look at it today. You can read it. Again, this, this really happened. You know, if you're a skeptic, I just want to say that whether you believe in this stuff or not, like the, the supernatural parts, the history definitely happened. There's, there's evidence for this. And here's one of them. This inscription from Babylon, it says, make, way, uh, make his way good, renew his road, make straight his path. Hew him out a track, H-E-W, hew him out a track. Think about who that is talking about, this ancient inscription. Make his way good, renew his road, make straight his path, hew him out a track. Who would be described there as, as going down this straight road, this, this flat and level road? Well, the answer is it's, it's the emperor. That whenever the emperor went down a road, it had to be flat. It couldn't have potholes in it. It couldn't be sloped like that, or it couldn't be this big incline. It had to be smooth and flat. Now, most of the roads back then were not like that at all. But see, the emperor, King Nebuchadnezzar, was so great that his emperor, uh, that, that his chariot would have to go um, on this flat road so he could go really fast. And when he would go from town to town, they would build these highways. High because they're kind of built up. And so um, that was the sign of the greatness of the king, that he could fly around this high-velocity chariot from one city to another in the empire. Now think about verses 3 and 4 to exiles in Babylon who are watching Nebuchadnezzar zip around in his chariot. Think about what God is saying here through Isaiah. He says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And if you know your New Testament, you know who said that. Um, think about the one who said this. This is uh, sometimes called the forerunner, also known as John the Baptist. He said this in uh, the way of describing Jesus. So it says, uh, 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Again, who's coming here? It's not just Nebuchadnezzar. It's God. It's the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain made low. Uneven ground become level. Rough places a plain. Now, in this vision, there are no engineers filling in the valleys. There are no guys with orange jumpsuits that are shoveling, that are leveling the mountains. There's no detonations or explosives. In this vision, this king is greater than any emperor because in this case, the mountains are actually voluntarily bowing down. And the valleys are rising up on tiptoe to see this king that's coming. Um, This greater than Nebuchadnezzar, who is riding on this supernatural highway that is not made with human hands. That's the symbolism that Isaiah is drawing out here to encourage them that a greater than Nebuchadnezzar is coming. And when he comes, nature gets down on one knee in obeisance to him. And the wind and the waves calm down when he raises up his hand. He kind of just snaps his fingers and they just go flat. And these wild, this wild donkey that no one has ever ridden before, that nobody could tame, he gets on it and it just walks him right through the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He just talks to a fig tree, it withers. He talks to some water, and it makes wine. I mean, he was the Lord of nature. He had control over everything. And so that's what it's saying here, is that, uh, that the mountains are going to bow down, and the valleys will rise up and create this highway for the greatest king ever. And if you don't know much about the things Jesus said about himself, uh, he said... Among other things, he said, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am pre-existent of Abraham. I am as an I am forever existing. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so what's going on here? Isaiah is saying, verse 9, behold, your God has come. God has come. Verse 10, behold, the Lord comes. And so this is the greatness of, of Jesus is um, that he is the Lord with a strong arm and might who has come to this earth to effect this regime change. And it's already happened. And, and if you're a Christian, a lot of times I can just tell you your mind is not in touch with reality. That your thoughts are very distorted and the way you perceive reality does not involve the fact that right now Jesus sits on the throne. That... Uh, Right now, the president of the U.S. is Donald Trump, but he is not the most powerful man in the world. And Andrea Merkel is probably the most powerful person in Europe, but she's not really the most powerful person in Europe, that Jesus Christ is on the throne. And a lot of times we get kind of mesmerized by the empire. Maybe it's being at the, uh, at the institution where you work or the school that you go to, and there's the principal or the boss or the CEO, and you, know, you get kind of uh, really entranced by their power. And you kind of kowtow to them. A lot of times I get mesmerized. I grew up in a professor's home. And so for me, the powers that be are very much uh, the intellectual powers. I'm not that entranced by money or by political power. But, but if I read a clever Atlantic Monthly article or if I watch a really brilliant movie or if I hear a great scholar give a lecture, I really want deeply to be a part of that. I want to be in on that. I want not to be rejected by that. I do not want to be disdained by the powers that be that speak to me. Maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's art or something like that. But um, just think about the way that, that our thoughts are so distorted by uh, kind of the greatness of these people around us. And Isaiah says, no, all flesh is grass. 
in verse 6. That's not a very flattering metaphor for human strength and ability. When the Bible talks about flesh, it's talking about the natural human strength, uh, beauty, um, power, uh, assertiveness, the will of humanity. All flesh is grass. All its beauty, like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flower fades. Surely the people are grass. Surely the Atlantic Monthly is grass and you know, the, the greatest movie, uh, the greatest director, the greatest actor ever made, the greatest scholar, they are like these fading flowers. The person you admire the most. You know, Jesus came here and he was, um, he was a carpenter. He didn't go to the best schools. He didn't go to Harvard. Uh, he, Harvard wasn't around then, but he didn't go to the, the equivalent of Harvard. He, he, um, he was kind of a nobody from Nazareth and he was made fun of a lot, but he never... Brown knows the Pharisees, which he could have done. He could have really tried to ingratiate himself with them. He didn't cozy up to the, the, the most powerful religious man of his day was a man named Caiaphas. He didn't cozy up to Caiaphas at all. He didn't cringe before Herod. He actually gained an audience with the king of Israel, Herod, the powerful king Herod. And he didn't cringe before Herod at all. And then when he met the Roman governor, Pilate, who had more power than anyone else in that region, uh, he did not bow down to Pilate whatsoever. Um, he said to Pilate, you have no authority over me at all that was not given to you by my father. You know, he looked him in the eye and he said, I could bring down a thousand angels on you right now if I wanted to. And I'm not going to. And Isaiah says in verse 10, behold, the Lord God has come with might and his arm is ruling for him. And so what I'm trying to get you to see is that the, the approval that you're so looking for from your boss or your teacher, your coach, your roommate, someone you really admire. Uh, God says all flesh is grass. It's not that lasting. It's not that important. The people that you need to impress as, as someone who's cool or relevant or, or hip or in with the latest fad, God says their beauty is like a flower of the field. Here today and gone tomorrow. And the people to which you say, uh, if they ever rejected me, I feel like I would die if I lost their good opinion of me. God says that the grass withers and the flower fades. And so the one whose opinion of you matters uh, is the one whose word stands forever. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. What he says about you is what will stand forever. And I can tell you that um, I've had people say things about me that were very difficult and they stay with you. You've all had this happen, um, unless you've lived among people who are sinless, and that's not true. But all of us live among people that are going to say things about us that are very hard. A lot of times, very important people to us have said things that have really scarred us. When I was in middle school and I was taking the bus uh, every day home, there was a guy who would always talk about my fingernails, and he said, your fingernails are so dirty. And he would, like, make fun of me that they were dirty. And I never, uh, like, cleaned them or anything like that. I don't know why. But, like, it would happen all the time that he would just make fun of me for my fingernails. And now if somebody made fun of me about my fingernails, I would be like, you know, whatever. But this guy in middle school, it devastated me. Um, somebody, after I preached my first sermon, said, you have no backbone as a preacher. And uh, this was a very important person in this church. And that was absolutely devastating. I, I have never forgotten that. Um, you know, they say that uh, compliments um, run off your, um, your mind uh, like Teflon, but criticisms are like Velcro, and they stick. And that one has stuck to me. 
Or someone said, uh, a friend of mine, I don't know why he felt the need to say this, but he said, Ben, you look so strange when you run. I saw you running out there the other day, I was laughing, because you look so funny. You know, your gait is so odd. Why would you say that to a friend? I still think about it when I, when I go running. And then um, a person, my boss, uh, once said, uh, Ben, you're like a giant marshmallow. And he even demonstrated, like, you know, you push, someone pushes on you, and you just kind of, it just goes, it does no effect whatsoever. And again, um, not really constructive criticism. Those, those words stay with you. They don't leave you. But the king says something completely different to me, to you. And his word stands forever. And those words just kind of fade away. I mean, all those people will, will be gone one day. Um, I'll never see that guy in middle school again. Probably never uh, hear from that uh, lady that criticized me again. May not ever talk to that person who mocked my running or my boss. Uh, might not ever talk to them again. And so those, those words just fade. Those opinions fade. But this, this word from the great king who's come will last forever. And his word is a gracious word. That's the last thing I want to say is that his word to us is gracious. When, which, which Israel may not have thought was the case. They might have thought that his coming was actually bad news. They might have thought that the coming of God would not be good news because they had, like I said, they had been um, ignoring God, rejecting God. They had become like the, the empire around them. They had refused to follow his ways. And so a coming might not necessarily be a good thing. When I walk up my, the stairs of my house and I say, I'm coming up there. If you don't stop doing X, Y, or Z, I'm coming up there. And when they hear my footsteps coming up the stairs, it's not good news. The, the coming of the great king of 636 South Sunset is, is a bad thing for my children a lot of times when they're upstairs. It's bad news. And so uh, the coming of a great king is potentially a frightening prospect. But that's why Isaiah is so quick to say, comfort, comfort my people. That he's not coming to blast you, my people. That he's coming to speak tenderly to you. He's not coming to judge you. He's coming to pardon you. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The great king is a gracious king. And all of our infatuation with the empire and its ways and our brown nosing and our obsequious groveling, it does not cause him to reject us at all. Quite the opposite. He moves closer to us. He actually says, my people, your God, in verse 1. He, that's the covenant formula. I will be your God and you will be my people. He, he reaffirms the covenant formula right there. And the grace that he gives us uh, is such that we can scarcely even imagine. It's one of those things that I can guarantee you no one has ever treated you this way in your life. We try. We can try to imitate his grace, but there's no way to imitate the persistence of this grace, the depth of this grace. Look at verse 2. I'm going to end with this. Uh, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I've been reading my Bible for a long time, since I was converted when I was 21. So that's, uh, that's a long time, over 20 years, reading the Bible. This verse, Isaiah 40 is a really famous passage, if you didn't know that. It's very famous. Uh, it's one of those verses that Christians will memorize. That passage right there has bothered me every time I've read it. And I never really know what to do with it. So I, I, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon. That's always a good way to figure out what something means if, if you don't know what it means. I listened to a Tim Keller sermon, and he said, uh, it's not what you think. It, it looks like 
it looks like Isaiah is saying that she has been punished twice the amount that she ought to be punished, right? She has received double the punishment for her sins. But we kind of just read that in there, which is partly our suspicious minds. That's not what he says. He just, what he's saying there is that she has received uh, double blessing in spite of her sin. That's why, I, said, I mean, it wouldn't be comforting if he had said double punishment. Like, why would it be comforting? He says, comfort, comfort my people, because she has received double the unmerited favor of God in spite of her great sin. Now, why do I say double? Double because, number one, the exile was ended, but God could have let her just wander around the world aimlessly. But he didn't do that. He didn't just let the exile end graciously. They hadn't done anything to deserve that. He brought the exile to an end after 70 years. But then not, not only that, number two, he brought them back to the promised land and gave them money to rebuild the temple. He brought them back. So those are the two blessings. And, and the way I would put it to us today is not only are you forgiven, that's one of the two blessings, but number two, uh, you're absolutely treasured by God. And I think that's the part that we have a hard time believing. I mean, we have a hard time believing both. Uh, most Christians at least know that their iniquity is pardoned. That's verse 2 there. Iniquity, your iniquities are pardoned. Uh, even people uh, who are not necessarily Christians believe in forgiveness, uh, maybe even divine forgiveness to some extent. So that part, we know kind of we have that, you know, get out of jail free card. So we're not any longer going to prison. That famous illustration of how uh, we go to court, God says, um, I'm going to pay the fine. You can go free. You know, and then we go free. But here's what we think. At that point, we think, okay, now I'm on probation. And, uh, and Jesus is the probation officer. And so he's always got his eye on me. And uh, he's a little bit suspicious of me and kind of disappointed in me regularly. I'm a little irritating to him. I never quite live up to what he's hoping for me because I'm kind of on probation. At any point, I could go back to jail. You know, that's the idea we have. We're forgiven but then that's kind of, that's the end of the story. But if you look at verse 10, it says that there's a lot more than forgiveness. This is the second half of the blessing, the double blessing, the double the grace. And it's so unbelievable that, uh, again, it's one of those verses where it's hard to really understand what he's saying. It says, his reward is with him. This is, of course, talking about the Lord God coming. His recompense lies before him or is before him. And recompense and reward are the same thing. That's, his, that's what he's getting out of coming. Uh, it, it seems like maybe he's saying that he's going to come and bring rewards. Like he's Santa Claus with a sleigh and he's coming in and he's got all these rewards. And if you've been you know, nice that year, if you haven't been naughty, then he's going to give you a lot of presents. So the reward, we think, is what he's going to give to you. But that's not what it says. It says that something lies before him that he gets, that he's looking forward to. Apparently, he and God, the Father and God, the Son, had this conversation where, you know, the Father said, I want you to go, and the Son wanted to go. And the Father said, if you go, I will give you this great reward. I will give you this inheritance. And so that's what's going on here, uh, that he is getting something he did not already have. You say, what could the Son ever have uh, that was not completely sufficient with the Father? What did he not have there? I mean, he had the love of the Father, eternal in heaven forever. So what exactly is this reward, this recompense? The book of Hebrews said, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. He was looking forward to a joy that was set before him as he goes to the cross. And I think verse 11 
tells us what that is. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those that are young. Now, that's encouraging to us who are the sheep. But I even think it's more encouraging to think of the shepherd. Because the shepherd is absolutely delighted to find the sheep. They, they, are, they rejoice when they find. That's the reason they exist, is to find sheep. And to pick them up and to gather them in their arms and to carry them. The bosom would be like their head would be here. I mean, I'm not a shepherd, um, so I've never picked up a sheep. I've never found a lost sheep, but I have picked up uh, my own child for the first time. So, I, so my daughter was born, um, and uh, I don't remember if I cut the umbilical cord or not. Did I? Yeah, I did. Okay, I cut the... <laughs> and then, you know, after you do that, you, you hold the child, you put that child's head here, and it's just an unbelievable feeling. Uh, of the, the head is a lot heavier than you think. The child is a lot warmer than you think. The little arms are kind of moving like this, and their eyes, you're looking in their eyes... And uh, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. I mean, I was in tears. And this is saying that not only are you forgiven, but that Jesus loves, delights like a shepherd to carry you and to protect you and to find you and to re-find you and re-find you and re-find you when you're lost. And that is his joy, is calming you down and, uh, and giving you grace. Especially here, I think this might be his favorite thing he does each week is... When all over the world he feeds his people his own body and blood. And he knows that this is so nourishing. I mean, we don't know it a lot, how nourishing it is. But um, it's kind of like sleep, where you don't really realize anything happened to you in the night. But we know that's one of the most physically important things we do, is to sleep. And this is kind of like that. It operates in a way that we don't really understand. But uh, Jesus does. And on the night he was betrayed, he instituted this incredible event. Where he said, this is...